Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests, and welcome to worship this morning. It is indeed so, so good to begin a new week together in Christian community and by turning our attention Godward. And so we will do just that this morning. Special welcome to those of you who are in the sanctuary for worship this morning or those who are joining us uh, perhaps over distance through technology. Glad to be with you. Our call to worship this morning will be on the screen, and you have a rather simple, repeated line, but we will do it together. I'll be the one, and you be the all. Let's join together. God invites us to worship, and we show up, some with laughter and with songs of joy. God invites us to worship, and we show up, some from a sense of obligation or habit. God invites us to worship, and we show up, some with hearts heavy with grief. God invites us to worship, and we show up, some enthusiastic and others exhausted. God invites us to worship, and we show up to behold the beauty and the power and the wonder and the love of God in our midst. Friends, I invite you to stand and let's sing sing to the king of our hearts.
Friends, one way that we learn about who God is is through encountering God's creation. And rather than worship the beauty and the power of nature, as we have just sung, we worship the God who created it and who reveals himself through what he has made. In a similar way for centuries, Christians have turned to visual art devotionally to teach and meditate on truths about who God is and who we are in relation to God. Grand cathedrals speak to the power, the majesty, and transcendence of God. Stained glass windows and painted ceilings creatively tell the stories of scriptures and the saints. Visual art takes us beyond words in a way that only art can. To paraphrase Henry Nouwen, this kind of art offers access through the gate of the visible to the mystery of the invisible. Let me say that again. It offers access through the gate of the visible to the mystery of the invisible. This morning, we welcome you into a prayer and reflection through art and imagination. So truthfully, the art I've selected for us this morning is not one of my favorite pieces. So whether or not you find it beautiful or compelling when you first take a glance at it, no worries. I think that we'll find that it has some hidden gems and that we can interact with it prayerfully. One quick note, many of the ideas and reflections that we're borrowing today come from this book, Contemplative Vision, written by Juliet Benner. So if you want to learn more about how to engage art prayerfully, this is a great, great read. Let's pause in silence for a moment as we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Amen. We're going to do a bit of Christmas in July. This is a scene called The Adoration of the Shepherds, painted by a 17th century French artist. It tells the story of Jesus' birth, the angels appearing to shepherds to bring good news of great joy, and the shepherds going to see this amazing thing that has happened. One of the most familiar invitations in scriptures to come and see is this one offered to the shepherds. What does the invitation come and see stir within you this morning? Notice the different kinds of reactions in this painting. As we zoom in on the background, we see shepherds encountering angels in the sky. They are terrified. The shepherds just outside the stable seem very curious, but a bit standoffish, perhaps. The ones closest to Jesus seem captivated in awe, wonder, and devotion. What about the angels at the top of the image and Mary and Joseph? Can we go to the big screen where we can see some angels there at the top? Imagine encountering the majesty and holiness of God as the angels appear to bring this good news. Imagine encountering the fullness of God in the form of the infant Jesus. Does he seem approachable? How would you respond? With fear, flight, receptivity, joy, service? As you imagine the stable and in this scene, what does it feel like in your body to be there? What is the temperature like? What does it smell like? What sounds do you hear? Notice the decaying parts of the stable. 
the artist is communicating visually that the old world system is crumbling and that Jesus' coming to earth has inaugurated a new age. But how is this new age realized? How does it come? The beam of the stable suggests the shape of a cross, foreshadowing how Jesus would save the world and teaching that this new age comes only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What does this actually mean for us? Lastly, notice this rock in front of the cradle. It's the only thing separating us as the viewers from Jesus, and it's quite small. Is it a stumbling block that keeps us from drawing closer? We don't have to wait until Christmas to experience the wonder of God with us in human flesh. Is there anything that keeps you from joining the shepherds to come and see the salvation of the Lord? In this painting, an ordinary stable is the place of the extraordinary. God has come to be with us. He has put on flesh to redeem humankind and all of creation. The sacred and the profane are brought together. The humblest things are holy and exalted. How do you see Christ in the ordinary? You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation, thou revealed in you are Christ. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name.
nothing can stand against What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus Sisters and brothers in Christ, it is because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you, as you are comfortable, to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor. Well, good morning, church. The Lord be with you. <clears throat> My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, and we would normally, I would normally remind you of our mission statement right now, but I'm going to invite you instead to say it together with me. So we'll get it on the screen, and we say together, our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Some of you have it memorized because you kept eyes locked with me. That was really good. Hey, uh, if you are new around here, uh, we're glad to have you in our midst. And if you'd like to make yourself known, we have connection cards available in-house. And also, if you're online, you can do so digitally. Uh, we'd love to get to know you uh, if you'd so allow. So please do fill those out and drop them off in the collection plates or the uh, welcome center just outside of the sanctuary. We also uh, uh, love to care and pray for one another, and so continually in our bulletin, there is a list of our prayer concerns and celebrations, and this week, uh, I draw your attention to that uh, because we, we have both some wedding celebrations and then also uh, some health concerns uh, to be keeping in prayer. One update is on Arlene Van Hecken has been hospitalized again, struggling with her kidneys. Uh, and so she's had a bumpy road for a while. Keep her in your prayers alongside the others that are in our bulletin this week. Please do. Last week, we told you we're about to send off our middle school and our high school groups on some mission endeavors, and they have gone, and they are there already. Our middle school group is at a new Wilmington Mission Conference where they are learning about global impact of, uh, of missions and having some fun interactively about doing that. Our high schoolers have successfully made it to Estes Park in Colorado, and they have a little uh, video greeting that we'll share with you here. Good morning, fellowship. After 18 long hours of driving, I'm happy to say that I'm here in the mountains with the Rocky crew. Hi! We hope you're having a good service. So are we. As you can tell in that video, or imagine especially as they are in Colorado, we are hoping that they will be overwhelmed by the majesty of God's creation and be drawn into Christian community uh, so that they might return even more uh, eager to love and serve God in the world. We get to do that very same thing here, though, too, and especially in West Michigan in the summer. I'll remind you that next week, Sunday, there is a thing called Wonder in Worship Walk, 
uh, next week, Sunday night. There's details in your bulletin that you can look uh, at there. But it's basically a little time of intentional practice in experiencing awe. And the intent is to experience wonder, to be wonderful, to be full of wonder. And I'll remind you also that walking is an option part of it. If walking is a limitation for you, that is okay as well. Please do uh, participate as well. So next week, mark your calendar and come back for that experience. I want to invite Jess up here, my friend Jess, and then the kids especially. If you are kids, children, please come forward and join us up here on stage. We normally bait you with candy or would think about it. I don't have candy this time because there's intrinsic value in what we're doing. But uh, we also do have something to give you. If you come forward, kids, you'll go, home, you'll go back out with something. So please come and join us up here. Wonderful. Come on forward. Welcome, kids. Thanks for joining us up here. A few more oh, coming yeah. in. Oh, yeah. A few more stragglers coming. Yeah, who needs stairs? That's right. <laughs> yeah, really good. Hey, boys and girls, as you may have noticed, we were just looking at a picture of art on the screen, and it has us wondering a little bit, do you like to draw or color sometimes? Show of hands. Do you like to draw and color? Okay, when you draw and color, what do you like to draw or color? What things? Raise a hand. What do you like to draw or color? I like to draw and color Jesus. Jesus. Very good. Jesus. Excellent. That's always the right answer. We are done. Here we go. <laughs> go home. Okay. Anybody else? Any others? Yeah. Penelope. Me and my family. Me and my family, she said. That is excellent. Good job. Any others? How about this? What kinds of pictures or drawings or art do you like to look at? What do you like to see? Yeah. Paintings. Paintings. Very good. What are in those paintings that you look at? Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. You have some yes. on your shirt. Oh, my word. It's a whole piece of art on I your shirt. I love the bow tie as well. That the bow, is... well, of course you do. <laughs> we had one right here, too. Do you remember what you were going to say? I like to color. You like to color. What do you like to color? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, just all the things. Yeah. Me, too. <laughs> when you guys draw things or when you look at pictures... What's your favorite, to draw something or to look at a picture of something you've seen before or something you've never seen before? Never seen before. Oh, cool. Anybody else? I want to see that for <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was good, though. <laughs> Too deep for words. <laughs> Using your imagination. Now, here's a really big question, okay? Speaking of things we've never seen before, what do you think it would look like to see God? What does God look like? I don't know. <laughs> said, nobody, said nobody knows. knows. Nobody yeah. knows. That was a good answer. We don't know. We don't know. Fair enough. Can you use your imagination? 
juicy day. <laughs> Did you have something to say? I forgot. It's okay. <laughs> I forget things all the Boys time. Boys and girls, you are really close because our Bible does tell us that no one has ever seen God, so we don't necessarily know what God looks like. But also, if we use our imaginations, we do know some things about God. Does some things come to mind? What, what is God like or what does God do? What do we know about God? He says the gospel. Yeah. The gospel, yeah. What does that mean to you? Uh, I forgot. Okay. I forgot. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what else do we know about God or what does God do? Yeah, Penelope. He follow, follows us. Follows, follows us, us like we're yeah. never alone, huh? Yeah, right there. Um, he makes trees for us to breathe. Oh, that's amazing. Trees for us to breathe. You know a lot about science. He's the reader. Is, did you say deliverer? I'm just going to say you said deliverer because that sounded like a really good one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I wonder if you use your imagination and we think about what we know about God, what would it look like? So if God is love, what might love look like if you were to try to draw a picture of it? If God is always with us, what would you draw a picture of to show that? There are no wrong answers. Yeah. That he's the up in the sky. Up in the sky, yeah. Anybody else? Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard, isn't it? I think it's hard to think about how to draw some of those things about who God is. You know, there was a guy in the service, last service, his name's Jay Bruns. He said he thinks that God looks like a short guy who's balding and has a big nose because he's made in God's image, and that's what he looks like. <laughs> Again, no wrong answers. <laughs> But boys and girls, what we do know from the Bible is that eventually God did take on flesh in the person of Jesus. So we do know a lot of what God is like by looking to Jesus. And that's a really cool thing. And now we're back full circle to drawing pictures of Jesus. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we have a special thing for you guys. I know those of you who are up to first grade, you're going to be dismissed in a minute to go to children and worship. And those of you who are staying here or going, you have an opportunity to take some, Miss Betsy has some crayons and some paper. And if you want to use your imagination and draw what you think it would be like to see God, then you can draw on a piece of paper. You get a whole box of 24 crayons. There's so many colors in this. And then if you want, and your parents are able to do this, there's a cell phone number on the back. You text us a picture. We might be able to put it up on the screens. Even if you're in children and worship, Okay. So use your imagination and draw what you think it would be like to see God. Very good. Can I close us in prayer? Hold your hands, close your eyes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to know you. We thank you that you love us, and we thank you so much for the example of Jesus who shows us most clearly what you are like. Thanks for each one of these kids up here and for the fun we get to have in coloring and drawing, and we ask that uh, you would enable them to do that even uh, in the next little bit as Pastor Tierra preaches. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and get your supplies over there, even better than candy, from Miss Betsy over there. 
and the rest of us will continue in worship. close to you. <laughs> uh, would you. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we are <clears throat> so grateful, so grateful for the beauty and glory and splendor of a creation that praises your name. 
And we are so grateful that we get to um, not only worship when we're scattered about in creation, but also gather together with your people, with your church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to sing together, to pray together, to imagine together, and also to study the scriptures together. And as we turn toward those scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might behold you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Uh, my name is Tiara. If I have not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. Um, and if you're joining us for the first time and you're hopping in again after a few weeks away, uh, we are in a series that we're calling Letters from Home. Uh, in this series, we've been exploring a number of the epistles or the letters of the New Testament, uh, letters written to the first followers of Jesus. And though written in the first century, timeless so much so that they're still, we're still reading them today because they're as relevant today as they were when they were first written. Today in particular, we're going to explore what Paul had to say to the Colossians, but in a way, what Paul also had to say to us too. Now, what makes Colossians a particularly interesting letter is not only the content of the letter, but where Paul writes from, because Paul is writing from prison. Actually, if you go to the Colossians 4 slide, that one verse, 418, I believe it's 418, which is chapter 4, uh, Paul is writing from prison. He actually says to uh, the church at Colossae to remember his chains, uh, remember his chains, and also that he writes this particular greeting with his own hands, implying, implying that Paul, next slide, uh, implying that Paul didn't write physically with his own hand the letter to the church at Colossae because he was writing, uh, because uh, someone was actually taking dictation from him. Colossians 4. There it is, yeah. <laughs> Forgot my own slides. Uh, so where exactly is Paul? Is he in Rome? Is he in Ephesus? Is he in Philippi? Uh, these are questions, um, there are tons of questions and tons of speculation about where Paul is imprisoned um, at the time of this letter. If he's in Rome, uh, then it tells us that he's probably writing sometime around 60 to 62 AD. If he's in Ephesus, then perhaps 50 to 55 AD. Uh, there's plenty of smart people who think very differently about this, but I'm gonna err on the side of N.T. Wright uh, this time around. I think last time I, I was in Colossians with you, I noted 60 to 62. AD. I'm going to switch camps before your very eyes. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to switch to the N.T. Wright camp uh, because he is not only a prolific New Testament scholar, but he's also English, so he's most likely right. Uh, anyway, he argues that Paul is in prison in Ephesus, uh, largely because Luke describes quite the drama in the city of Ephesus. It seems that Paul managed to upset all of the groups in Ephesus. Uh, Paul angered the people in the synagogues with his message of Jesus as the Messiah. Paul angered the spiritual but not religious community when ancient magic scrolls were burned. Paul even angered the worshipers, worshipers of Artemis, including the local business people and the local artisans who depended on the cult of Artemis for their revenue stream. In 21st century language, Paul had a really, really, really bad day on Twitter. And the result, N.T. Wright argues, is that Paul finds himself beaten and imprisoned. In fact, not only does Paul tell the Colossians um, that he is confined, but also that he is in pain there. Uh, we see that he's in pain. We hear the pain in Paul's voice. Uh, and we also recognize that it is most likely his mentee, his dear friend Timothy, who is writing on his behalf. 
Now, if you're Paul, you're probably thinking a lot of things right now. But if we can allow for Paul to be just like a little tiny bit human for a bit, then maybe we can also admit that he's probably at a breaking point of sorts. He's got to be thinking on some level, I put it all out there for the gospel. I preached a message of love. I preached a message of peace. I preached a message of freedom. And somehow it was received with hatred and hostility and imprisonment. This is the epitome of I did everything right and things still went wrong. You know what this feels like. You've experienced this before. I've experienced this before. Um, in fact, last May, uh, not in a not-so-dire example, um, I had the joy of hiking up to El Capitan uh, in Yosemite. And it's a 13.6-round mile trip, uh, and it's about 4,799 feet of elevation gain. And on my way up, the temperature started to drop pretty significantly around the time that I realized that I'd left my jacket and my gloves in the place I was staying. Uh, and because I'm myself and I'm not a quitter, I decided to keep going. Uh, but then it started to snow. Uh, and because it started to snow, the trail wasn't as, as noticeable, so I got off course a little bit. Uh, and then because the snow was slippery, I rolled my ankle a bit too. And then I finally make it over to the rock slab that was El Capitan, and this was the first image that I took, but this is the second one. Yeah, completely, clou completely cloudy and hazy, can't see anything, which then prompted this face. Yeah, so <laughs> what do you do when you put in everything but get nothing in return? What do you do when all, you do all the things right and things still go wrong? What do you do when bad things happen to good people? What do you do when things are a bit unfair? What do you do when, like Paul, you're punished for doing the right thing, the good thing, the true thing? This is where Paul finds himself. And while in prison, Paul begins to pen the answer that the Holy Spirit led him to. So here are the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, picking up in verse 13. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and I holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed... We continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the start of his letter to the church at Colossae, Paul curiously refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now these are two major, major significant titles, two major motifs throughout the scriptures, and understanding how they're used throughout the scriptures is key to understanding what Paul is doing here. So I want to take you back to two places in particular where we see these two motifs or these two titles mentioned. Uh, first, the image. Where have you heard the image or the image of God referenced in the scriptures before? Easy answer. 
What was it? Genesis, yeah. Genesis. In Genesis 1, we learn that humans are created in the image of God. Uh, And it's a really interesting narrative. Uh, If you recall, on the first day of creation, God brings forth light. Uh, If you go to that next slide, God brings forth light, and he separates the darkness from the light. And then on the second day, God separates the waters below from the waters above, and the waters above he calls the sky. And then on the third day of creation, God creates dry land with trees and plants, and then he gathers the waters together, and they become the sea. Now, in days four, five, and six, we see God filling the creation that he has created. For instance, on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars to rule the day and the night. And on the fifth day, God creates the birds and the fish to fill the waters above and the waters below. And on the sixth day, God creates land animals to fill the dry land. And then, dead last, God creates the humans, not just to fill the earth, but to rule the earth. And not just to rule the earth, but to rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature of the earth. This is a stunning picture of humanity that we find in our scripture. Stunning for two reasons. One, because it's counterculture-cultural. In the ancient Near East, the image of God was preserved for rulers. And rulers weren't everyday muggles like you and me. Rulers were kings. The king was made in the image of the gods. The king was the one who ruled on behalf of the gods. But second, this is a stunning picture of humanity, even in the cosmic order. Humans are made, fashioned from the dirt, but somehow animated by the very breath of God, created last, but somehow given dominion and rule over everything. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Humans are not just created a little lower than the angels, but created after the angels, according to the scriptures. In Job 38, the angels, the sons of God, shout for joy as God lays the foundations of creation, created lower and last, and yet given the unique role of ruling over everything as God's image bearers of being God's conduits of blessing and generosity throughout creation. What a lofty title we've been given as the image of God. I thought about Psalm 8 a lot as I hiked in the Tetons and Glacier over the last couple of weeks. Um, Usually when I hike, I often take a verse or a passage with me to kind of mull over and turn over in my mind um, as I spend time on the trails. This time I was mulling over the virtues of courage and patience and also the counter virtue or the vice of recklessness, long story for a different day. Uh, But but Psalm 8 kept coming to me um, as I stared out and up at mountains. Psalm 8 just kept resonating within my soul. Uh, There's something about being in the mountains or staring at them that just makes you feel so incredibly small. Uh, You feel your humanity, you feel your finitude, especially as things hurt, um, and as you contemplate the vastness of creation in front of you. And also the consequences of one little tiny misstep and the preservation of God in the midst of it. The triune God of the cosmos shaped 
the mountains with his very word. Glaciers give way to beautiful turquoise lakes at his word. He causes his sun to shine, to rise, and to set over them with such glory and splendor that it literally brings tears to our eyes. And he chose to set you and me, these lowly dirt creatures with no special powers whatsoever, in the midst of it. He set us in creation and said to us, all of this, all of this is placed under your feet so that you can be my representative, so that you can be my ruler, so that you can be my conduit of blessing and creation. To be made in the image of God is to be granted rule on God's behalf and in a way that brings about God's goodness and generosity and blessing in creation. What a gift we've been given, which is what makes the events of Genesis 3 so incredibly astounding. Because in Genesis 3, we find the first couple in the Garden of Eden, and we're told that there's a crafty serpent, and that the serpent begins to speak. Now, does the ancient Jewish mind believe that snakes talk? Of course not. <laughs> but what they're doing is alerting us to the fact that something cosmic, something big, something unseemly is taking place. Something dark and sinister has taken the form of the serpent. Now, the Judeo-Christian tradition has taken for granted that the serpent is Satan. Indeed, if we look to the final book of our scripture, Satan is referred to as the ancient serpent. We see this in Revelation 12 uh, and also in Revelation 20. Uh, the serpent is read as Satan, the fallen angel, leading a cosmic rebellion in disguise as a serpent. We also see Jesus quite directly reference the fall of Satan from heaven in Luke chapter 10. Now, why is there a rebellion? Why does Satan fall from heaven? Why do the angels rebel? Because, quite frankly, they're envious of the unique role of humanity as God's image bearers. Rusty Reno, theologian, Bible scholar, public intellectual, alludes to this in his commentary on Genesis when he says, the human creature has a unique role. We are what angels and demons can never be a hybrid of body and spirit that participates in all aspects of the created order. Through us, God can reach into all corners of his creation. Neither pure spirit nor mere body, we are at the crossroads of reality. And then he says, the future of the cosmos is in the hands of whichever army, good or evil, controls this strategic point. That is our humanity. We often assume that the fall of Satan was a matter of pride, and it was, but we overlook the role of envy. Envy is simply put to feel sorrow over another's good. It is Satan's envy that says it should have been me because I came first and I'm better. It's Satan's envy that says they don't deserve it because they're just dirt creatures. It's Satan's envy that says, if rule and dominion of creation doesn't belong to me, I will destroy creation and everything in it trying to take it. And it is out of envy that the serpent sidles up to Adam and Eve in the garden and convinces them that they want to, if they want the wisdom to rule over creation, then they must too, like him, take it for themselves. And this ever so subtle argument works on Eve. And so Eve took the fruit, the text says. Uh, but it uses this word, uh, uh, lecha. Uh, repeat after me, lecha. A little bit more in there, lecha. <laughs> uh, it means to take or to seize or to grasp. I mean, there's a violent con con um, kind of connotation to it. It really is to like to snatch something or to seize it, uh, to take. Eve takes the fruit and her husband along with her 
And in this fatal move, they become image bearers, not of the triune God who created the cosmos and entrusted it to them, but of the Satan who leads the rebellion to destroy it. And the consequences reverberate throughout the cosmos, and not just the consequences, this pattern of taking. In fact, we see this pattern of taking repeated in the very next story. If in Genesis 1 through 3, we encounter the first image bearers of the scriptures, in Genesis 4, we encounter the first firstborn of the scriptures. In Genesis 4, Eve rejoices proudly when she bears a son, Cain. She loudly proclaims, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, this may have something to do with what she um, expects of Cain. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to redeem humanity and restore creation through the seed of the woman. And so it's likely the case that both Adam and Eve think that Cain, they take it literally, that Cain is the seed to redeem humanity and creation. Needless to say, Cain grows up as the kid, um, as the firstborn. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn status uh, was to be favored, uh, to be favored amongst all of the children. It was the kid who received a double portion of his father's inheritance. It was the kid who received the status of family leader and the role and the responsibility as family leader when his father passed on. Uh, and the reason the firstborn was elevated wasn't just for his own sake, but was actually so that the firstborn could be a conduit of blessing to the family and to the servants, to the entire estate, and to anyone who lived around the family's estate, orphans, widows included. As the firstborn son, Cain followed um, in his father Adam's footsteps as the keeper of the ground. He was a farmer. Uh, and then Abel, the little brother, comes along. How many of you remember life before your siblings came along? How many of you? Yeah, I'm an only child, so I didn't have any siblings. <laughs> uh, so then Abel, the little brother, comes along. And not only is Eve silent at his birth, I mean, no celebration, no song, no poem, but she names him Abel, which in Hebrew is this word, hevel. Repeat after me, hevel. Hevel. Uh, it's a word that means vapor or mist or nothingness. Notice the narrative play there. But also, notice what it's implying about Cain and Abel. Needless to say, Cain is clearly the favorite son, and Abel is the kid who gets to play with his half-broken toys. Uh, some of you know what it's like to be the favorite. Some of you know what it's like to not be the favorite. Uh, you could say that Cain was a little bit like Ross, and Abel was a little bit like Monica. <laughs> uh, yet despite being named after nothingness, Abel brings an incredible offering before the Lord. Cain offers some vegetables, but Abel offers the firstborn of his flock and the costlier fat portions, which is a very risky move if the flock is not that fruitful that year. In today's economy, Abel essentially tithes on his yearly salary in January without a 12-month contract. And as a result, Abel's offering of the firstborn of his flock is favored, and Cain's offering of vegetation is not favored because God is not a vegan. Kidding, God loves vegans too. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, this moment becomes a massive flashpoint in Cain's relationship with his brother Abel. And the text says very literally that he becomes angry and his face falls, which is a whole a way of saying that his entire presence, his countenance falls. You can read the disappointment on Cain's face. And if you're honest, you've probably felt this before yourself. I have at times. It's the moment when someone in your life gets the thing that you want. And not just someone in your life, maybe even someone who you don't think deserves it as much as you. Maybe, maybe they don't want it as bad as me. Maybe, maybe they haven't waited as long as I have. 
Cain's entire countenance falls when his brother Abel's offering draws the face of God. And sometimes ours does too, because quite honestly, we miss one essential truth that God tries to impress upon Cain and also us. Why are you angry, God says to Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And we often recall the second half of God's address to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And there's good reason for that because it's a good word for us too. Sin is crouching at the door of our souls, waiting always to seize our disappointments and our resentments and our frustrations and our envy toward others. But the first portion of God's address is also essential here. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now, it seems like God is saying to Cain, just work harder to, and I'll accept you. If you just work harder, Cain, I'll accept you. But the key is in this Hebrew word, se'it. Repeat after me, se'it. You can translate that as, accept, as accepted, but that would be a very, very uh, generous paraphrase. Uh, the word actually means to exalt or to lift up or to ennoble. And so the text reads, uh, it's, it's almost like the text reads, if you were to do what is pleasing, I and mean, if you were to turn your eyes toward me, Cain, will you not also be exalted? Abel, the little brother, named after nothingness, manages to um, is present an offering to, the God, to God and is lifted up or elevated by God. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. God's elevation is not a zero-sum game. There's enough, God says, for Cain too because God is generous to all of his children. God doesn't favor some of his children. He's generous to all of his children. And God asks, if you do what is pleasing to me, will you not also be exalted, Cain? But instead of heeding the voice of the Lord, Cain escalates to murder. Cain is the firstborn, and instead of being a conduit of blessing to his younger brother like he was meant to be, Cain takes the life of his brother. And just like his parents, the first image bearers, just like the serpent before them, Cain takes. Now, lest you think this pattern of taking is exclusive to firstborns, remember Jacob was a secondborn too. And Jacob knew he was getting a raw deal by being born the secondborn in the family. And so he outright steals the blessing from his older brother Esau. The scriptures are full of examples of people who take things for themselves. It seems that all of us have this problem of taking, going back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Which brings us to just what's so unique about the Christ Paul describes to us in Colossians 1. Paul says that this Christ is the one who perfectly images God's abundance and generosity and goodness. Not only that, but this Christ is the firstborn of all creation and he is the firstborn of the dead and the new creation. And how does he do that? Last week, Reverend Dieleman so eloquently walked us through Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's this beautiful, beautiful Christ hymn, um, this beautiful Christ hymn that describes the way that Christ is the image in the firstborn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be what? Grasped, seized, taken, held for himself but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity. In a creation hell-bent on taking, Christ is the first human, the first human to actually trust. The first human to actually trust. 
and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's generosity and God's abundance and God's ability to redeem the first human to trust to the excruciating point of death on a cross. He trusts in the timing and the method of God's generosity and goodness and abundance. And in doing so, he redeems us from the clutches of death. He redeems us from the clutches of envy and strife and hostility and rivalry. He redeems us from the clutches of taking and he cracks open the door to the new creation, a new creation filled with a restored humanity that has also learned to trust rather than take. Jesus not only shows us, but himself does it for us and, and shows us what it means to and himself trusts in the generosity of God. And when he does, when he does, he becomes the very conduit of, of generosity and goodness and abundance that our creation has been longing for, groaning for since the fall of humanity into sin. I think as Paul sat in prison and as he felt the tension between God's generosity and goodness and abundance on the one hand and his own imprisonment and pain on the other hand, I think he began to contemplate the glorious face of the Christ that he encountered on the road to Damascus. And much like the way that we stare up at or we stare out at the mountains, I think Paul stared into the face of the Christ he encountered long enough to come to the conclusion that all things inexplicably hold together in this Christ who is Lord of creation and our redemption. Because etched into creation, into the creation made through and for this Christ is the upside down nature of God's ordering hand a place where the last inexplicably and graciously become first, a place where dirt creatures are elevated to the status of the angels, a place where second-borns who aren't even thought of and get all of the hand-me-downs are somehow elevated to the same status of firstborns and get to share in the inheritance, a place where sinners are not thrown away or left to the clutches of the Satan who takes them, but pried out of the hands of Satan and brought back into the community and the fellowship of the saints and our God forever. And while sometimes the faithful are decimated, as we see in Paul's case, flogged, imprisoned, martyred, or treated unfairly, insofar as this Christ is Savior and Lord, we can trust that they are always, always vindicated, if not in this life, then in the life to come. It's in contemplating the sheer glory and majesty of this Christ that Paul is able to follow Christ through his own pain and hardship and to echo the way of this Christ as he too trusts rather than takes Indeed, this is the driving thrust of his letter to the church at Colossae. Paul offers some pretty significant ethical teachings throughout chapters two and three of Colossians. He condemns their running after false teaching. He condemns their sexual sin. He condemns their sins of speech. But here Paul's teaching in light of the whole. The extent of their obedience and ours is always a direct reflection of our trust, our ability to trust in God's generosity and goodness and abundance toward us. I think this is our invitation for this morning, to trust in the method and the timing of God's generosity and goodness and abundance toward us. And there's a couple strategies for doing that. First, like we tried earlier, contemplating God's glory and majesty and creation and redemption. I think doing so helps us to feel rightly small and dependent on the very hand of God and the very word of God. I think doing so keeps all things, including our challenges and our problems, in perspective but I also think it helps us to begin to fathom just how much our triune God loves us and how much generosity and grace and love he extends toward us. 
I think if we're not convinced of that, if we're not convinced both of God's glory and also his generosity toward us, that envy and insecurity, that wrath and the desire for revenge, they will, revenge, they will eat us alive. Envy comes from a place of deficiency and lack. Maybe lack over something I don't have, or, or, but even more so, it's the unwillingness to trust that God has enough for us, that God has enough for all of us, and it does weird things in our minds and in our hearts and in our relationships. So as we contemplate God's glory, we begin to trust also in God's generosity. But second, we begin to examine the places where we're tempted to take instead of trust. The pole is always there. It comes to all of us. We would be wise to regularly ask ourselves, where are we tempted to take rather than trust? To take the easy way out when things get hard. To take what doesn't belong to us to take what rightfully belongs to us, to take what was stolen from us, we think. Where are we tempted to take rather than trust? And lastly, like Paul and like some, several other examples in the scriptures, to tangibly practice being a conduit of God's generosity, abundance, and goodness, even and especially when envy and righteous anger well up within us. Three quick stories of where I see this the most. Uh, in Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot, um, Abraham and Sarah have been called to the promised land. And as they begin to make their way to the promised land, uh, Abraham decides to take his nephew Lot with him. Well, you could say that the estate of Lot and the estate of Abraham gets so big that there's a lot of conflict that results. Um, they, their herds people are fighting each other. Their staff people, their servants are fighting each other. They can't keep their animals straight. And so eventually Abraham wisely says, you know what, this isn't gonna work out. But I tell you what, Lot, God's creation is so vast and so abundant. Lot, you pick wherever you wanna go and I will go in the opposite direction. Abraham is so convinced of the call of God upon him, so convinced of God's generosity toward him, that he lets Lot pick first. We see this also in the example of King David with his interactions with King Saul. When we first meet King David, uh, he is just slain. Uh, this is short, shortly after second instance of meeting uh, David. He has slain uh, Goliath with a slingshot. And then he fast forwards to this conversation in the tent of Saul. And this is an image that I didn't include this morning because little people, but <laughs> David stands in the tent of Saul playing Dutch bingo with him while he's holding the severed head of Goliath in his hand. Like it's astounding. And there's some great images from like the 17th century that include that. But <laughs> that said, David is a warrior and becomes the warrior king of Israel. But before that, before that, he has some interesting interactions with Saul a Saul who is threatened by him, a Saul who is insecure in his presence, a Saul who is so angsty that he needs to be soothed, and David, being a good harp player, comes to play the harp for him. And Saul gets so angry, so infuriated by David's presence that he launches a spear at David's head. Now David, who is really, really good with a slingshot, doesn't actually pull out his slingshot and fire back. Eventually, David goes on the run from Saul, and multiple instances we see in the scriptures, David has the chance to end, Paul, to end Saul, but he doesn't take it. He restrains himself. I saw these two examples in the life and the faith and the discipleship of a dear friend of mine. Uh, we'll call him Zach. Uh, and Zach uh, was the leader of Team X for Project X. But then Zach and I sat down for a second and he, um, to have a coffee, and he uh, was eventually leading Project Y. And I asked, well, how did you end up leading this other team or leading this other project? And he said, well, 
several months ago, um, I started to feel some angst um, over, um, over this team. And then eventually that angst gave way to insecurity. And eventually that insecurity gave way to envy because as I watched this one particular team member, they made me really uncomfortable. And I took that angst, that insecurity, that threat level to God, and I began to pray over it and to offer it up to God and to surrender to God. And what I noticed, what came to me in prayer, was that I was probably leading Project X because the people who made the decision about who was going to lead Project X knew me better than they knew the other person. They trusted me because they didn't know and trust the other person yet. But when in fact, this person that I'm a little bit insecure around, they're actually a little bit better at this thing than I am. And I actually think God is leading me to step down. And so he steps down and he goes to the higher ups. He actually goes to the higher ups first and he says, hey, I'm really thinking that this other person would be a better leader at Project X than I would be. And the higher ups agree after he makes the case for it. And then, he, and then he says the craziest thing happened. They looked at me and they go, well, the person who's leading Project Y has way too much going on. They need to step down. We actually think you would be really great at leading Project Y. Why don't you step over to lead Project Y and then you invite this other person to lead Project X? It doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always work out in a way that seems fair or where everybody wins. Uh, but there's something incredible that happens when we open ourselves up to be conduits of God's generosity in the lives of other people. And sometimes we're rewarded for that right in the moment, but sometimes, sometimes we're not. But in all of it, in all, all the cases, we get to be a signpost of the coming kingdom, a signpost of the new creation, a signpost of a new world in which God's generosity reigns in, through, and around us. I think that's what Paul began to trust. I think that's what Paul invites us to trust. I think that's what Paul invites the church of Colossae to trust, to trust rather than take. And in doing so, we get to not only follow, but worship and extend the generosity of our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your generosity toward us, for the goodness that you wanted for us, for the goodness that you impressed upon us, and for the goodness that you fought relentlessly to bring back to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're grateful that through his blood, through the blood of the cross, that we are reconciled in you. We are grateful that we get to be signposts of your coming kingdom, a coming kingdom in which your generosity and your abundance and your goodness envelops the land and envelops our hearts and envelops our relationships. And so, Lord, we pray this day that you would teach us to see Jesus and behold him in our midst and to behold him in our hearts, but that you would teach us to trust you like he does. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. I invite you in our response to stand. Um, and Paul, for the slides, we're going to just do the chorus and a couple of the bridges of this song together. So let's stand and sing together.
blessing for us this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.